why do we do these really hard things like reorganize ourselves and stress the system? We do it because a third of Americans right now are rationing their health care because they can't afford it. And that is a shame and it's a sin and we're not going to be part of it. That's Dr. Mark Harrison, president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. He's here talking with Oliver Wyman's Tom Robinson about his post-COVID experience leading a multi-state health system, what it truly means to be a digitally enabled provider, and what the future of vertical integration in healthcare looks like. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more insights on the business of transforming healthcare, visit our online publication at health.oliverwyman.com. On behalf of everyone who made this episode possible, we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. Today, I'm talking with a physician, an all-American triathlete who represented the US in the 2014 World Championships and now competes in Ironman races, and a guy who's also the president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare, Dr. Mark Harrison. As many of you will know, Intermountain is a health system. They operate in Utah, Nevada, and uh, Idaho. Got uh, 24 hospitals, 225 clinics across the three states, and a pretty successful health plan called Select Health, which we'll get into a little later in the show. Mark, it's great to have you here, and also to have you at our Health Innovation Summit later in the year. Welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm really quite honored to be here and looking forward to the summit. Excellent. And I'm, I'm afraid to say we're going to have to start with COVID, given the surge in the Delta variant. How's Intermountain faring right now? We're doing okay. I think if you had asked me a, a month ago, I would have said, boy, we're on our way to having a pretty normal summer. People are really eager to get back out to farmers markets and outdoor concerts and all the things that we love to do here in the summertime. And the surge is fairly profound. And our hospitals are quite full. Um, we're load leveling across hospitals. We're starting to feel really pinched in terms of delivering regular routine, acute and chronic care. And what really is quite heartbreaking to me is we're seeing a lot of people die who don't need to die. And at this point in time, in our ICUs, about 95% of the COVID admissions are people who are unimmunized. And then the rest of them are people with breakthrough infections who generally are people like me who have an immunodeficiency or a chronic condition. So it feels a bit unnecessary. We're trying hard to avoid polarization and inflammatory language because it really doesn't seem to help any. It hardens people instead of brings them together. So there, there you are. But it is Not so ideal. frustrating. Let's, uh, let's use this as a public service announcement, at least get those vaccinations going. What lessons did you learn from earlier in the crisis that you're applying now? So we, we have learned and are keep learning. We, we're really, we've gotten very good at remote work. So of our 45,000 people, fully a quarter of them are, are working from home at this point in time. People really don't want to come back to the old way of all the time in the office. And we're moving quite rapidly towards uh, hybrid options for lots of people. And they love that. You know, people with busy family lives, if they can avoid long commutes, both for environmental as well as for time management reasons, they're actually eager and happy to do it. But they also miss their friends and they miss their colleagues. And so they don't want to completely be remote, most of them. So we've learned that that's important. Um, and we've learned mm -hmm. from a medical standpoint that we are really, really good at implementing novel therapies and best practice in 
in weeks uh, to maybe months, as opposed to years to decades, which is historically what it's taken healthcare. Um, it's at, on an average, historically, it was 15 years from evidence to thorough change in medical practice. And now we can do this in weeks to months. And that's very exciting. And I think something that should be generalized. Do you think, do you think that's going to be possible without, without a fire burning? Well, I'm an impatient CEO, um, as you probably know, and I tease my team. I say, now that I know how fast you can go, we're going to keep going really fast because people need it. And so I think maybe not quite with the same lightning speed and urgency, but I think it has changed our culture actually in a, in a good way. I think people are more willing to take some risks and I think they're willing to get things wrong in the interest of continuing to evolve and going fast on behalf of the people we serve. I see that across all, all of my client conversations, like everyone talks about what we know, you know, it was five years of change in one year or, or, or perhaps even more. And everyone's trying to capture and harness the speed of change as we go forward. It'll be critical like now just to maintain pace with the competition, you'll have to be moving that quickly anyway. Well, we seek to lead the competition, not keep pace with them. <laughs> you probably hear that from your interviewees as well. I think you could make a good case at Intermountain, though. You made a quite significant organizational change a few years ago. How much has that helped drive some of the dynamism that you can now exhibit? So we've made a number of changes that were really quite profound. The first change is we said we will function as an operating company, not very creatively. We called it One Intermountain. There's a number of one whatevers out there. You may even have a one Oliver Wyman, for all I know where you want your Dubai group to work with your Seattle group, right. to work with your New York group. We said no more opting out, that we were all going to play as a team and we were going to, wherever possible, harmonize. And man, was that unbelievably helpful. We created an operating model that supported that. We created a, a goals and performance management system that mirrored that. And we actually reorganized the whole organization to deliver against value-based care and have shifted to a place where now... 50% of our $11 billion in revenue is associated with a full risk uh, model. That's actually really unheard of. It's usually an average about 2 to 3% in the system is actually true risk-based care. We want our audio and our video to match. And um, I have little patience and tolerance for big talk that isn't matched by real action and operation. I think all of that work that we did perfectly prepared us to deliver in a coordinated fashion against maybe the biggest public health challenge, I hope, the biggest public health challenge of our generation. What I love about the 50% being at risk is obviously the alignment of incentives that you get that comes from that. How much of that came from the, from the health plan, from, from Select Health? I think it's about half to 60% of that is from Select Health, but we now have some risk-based contracts elsewhere. We're very lucky here in Utah. Um, our Medicaid is managed Medicaid, and it has allowed us to take great care of a very fragile population and think about it holistically and not just in a transactional fashion. Select Health is definitely a very important lever in driving value-based care. We're fortunate we now have a couple of commercial contracts and maybe a couple more on the horizon. Our biggest impediment to moving even faster, to be quite honest, are the commercial insurance companies who I think are still making a lot of money and very much transactional volume-based arrangements. So we continue to encourage them very vigorously to move in the same direction that we're moving because 
you know, it, it sure does feel good to keep people from getting a heart surgery instead of performing that heart surgery on them. I think I couldn't agree more. I think you have this wrestling match, though, about the control of the consumer. Whoever controls that consumer relationship ultimately controls the flow of funds. And I think those payers are perhaps unwilling to cede that control. What do you think is causing their reluctance? Well, I think there is some inertia in some of these companies. Their sales force is uh, incentivized by very much old-fashioned incentives, discounts and volume and the, the usual stuff. And I think that there is a wrestling match around the premium dollar. We're sort of a dream for some of these folks because here we are very effective in terms of not doing things to people that they don't need to have done to them. And we're probably making them a whole lot of money by providing very effective care, just like we would provide to our full risk population. And they're reaping the benefits of that. And what we say is they should share that with us and that we should further align incentives and Folks who don't want to do that, we think, are thinking in a very short-term fashion, and it's not going to be good for them in the long run, certainly not their members. Right. And then as you look to other players beyond mm -hmm. Intermountain, do you think this is a prescription for them as well? Should we be seeing more vertical integration across the board, more moving upstream on the premium dollars, more control of that, more yes, control I, of the consumer relationship? Absolutely. Uh, the question then becomes, Tom, is the number of really well-organized payer provider models is actually pretty small. You know, one might even, if you were a little hyperbolic, say you could name the best ones on one hand. And there are a lot of folks who are quite effective at being providers who have failed or in the process of failing with their payer provider model. We need to figure out how to help people to accelerate that. And I hate to think that people need to invent that each time there should be a replicable model to take a provider system that wishes to take full risk and accelerate their ability to do so and increase the likelihood of success. We're taking some of that on right now with this company we started called Castell. It's like the Allidade model where it helps individual practices and potentially small systems to contract for risk and provides tools that allow their clinicians to help keep people well instead of just taking care of them when they're sick. An enablement company. I know we, we don't like the buzzwords, but they're enabling physician practices to perform Absolutely. well. And look, we, we want these physicians to be well paid for keeping people well, not well paid for doing lots of stuff to people who maybe not everything needs to be done. The old data from the Dartmouth Health Atlas suggests that the greatest likelihood for getting spine surgery is the number of spine surgeons in your neighborhood. So that's kind of unfortunate, right? Now, surgeries may be beautifully performed, and I'm not saying that surgeons who are doing them are ill-intentioned, but if you give somebody a hammer, the world looks like a nail. And so I think what we want to do is align the incentives so that people can function at the top of their capabilities, but only in the instances when it's absolutely necessary. And as you talked about, I mean, I think that you have this situation where there aren't a lot of high-performing payer provider partnerships. And that it's often because historically, because of a lack of a geographic fit, the payer is much broader, the provider has multiple payer relationships, they might have the geographic density, it's hard to find that right fit. And it's hard for them to know how to perform as well to the point on, on enablement. 
I wonder if with the massive explosion in virtual care that we've seen during the course of the pandemic, it does that give the payers of this world a play where they can say, now we can get upstream in care and in the relationship and we can start to provide that navigation. We can start to provide that enablement. Obviously, you were a, a real leader at Intermountain in, in virtual care. Does that give you a leg up or do you see the likes of Amazon care as a massive threat and, and it's going to attack or a little bit of both? That's a complex set of questions. <laughs> so uh, there's yeses and nos sprinkled through there. So if I sort of try and parse it a little bit, yes, we were huge leaders in virtual care and we've integrated it well into our operating model. Unlike many others, because we get paid largely to keep people well, we're not trying to shift back to face-to-face visits. In fact, we're trying to reverse that because we think in many cases, we take great care of people in a much more convenient fashion virtually. And um, it also allows us to keep people in remote rural areas and keep those rural hospitals viable so that we don't end up with healthcare deserts. Uh, And that all works because the incentives are aligned. Uh, I think that um, the Amazons of the world are going to play really relevant roles. I think they're going to need bricks and mortar footprint as well, uh, because people do get cancer. They do get hit by cars. They do have heart attacks. I do think there's an arrogance amongst some of the tech companies that they think because they write great code and they understand how to create algorithms, they actually know how to create trust with a sick person's family. And I actually had one of those phone calls earlier today with the head of one of the big tech companies and really respect him a lot. But I think he's smart enough to know they only have part of the answer. I'd love you to expand a little bit more on what you have done in virtual care and what you see the future. You've done some amazing things in tele-oncology and providing access to folks in rural areas. Perhaps you could just talk a little bit about that for our listeners. So so when I arrived here, uh, I discovered that we had, uh, and it was five years ago, I just had my fifth anniversary. I discovered we had really quite good telecritical care and some other uh, tele-capabilities that had developed here for all the right reasons. We've got this giant geographic footprint, sometimes hundreds of miles between towns. We really wanted to be able to provide great care to people at, at point of first care, because if we didn't, they would die. So we developed telecritical care, we developed tele-neonatology, we developed telepsychiatric crisis care, teletrauma resuscitation, telestroke, you, know, you name it. We had about 40, 50 different services. And I said, look, our next hospital is going to be a virtual hospital. We're going to pull this all together and run it like a hospital. We've got a hospital administrator. And uh, now we've actually added 30 different affiliate hospitals from outside of Intermountain that, where we do the same thing for them. And we provide, what we say is we want people to be in the the right time, right place, right cost. Um, We want them to be in the least restrictive, least expensive environment they can be in to get great care. And we're doing it. We're doing it at scale. And oncology is one of the many uh, services that we provide. We we were seeing um, people in rural areas who were deciding to die rather than to get chemo because they didn't want to spend the end of their life driving back and forth to a major center where they could get an infusion. And we had very smart clinicians rurally who said, hey, give us a tell a link, they can talk to the oncologist and we can do their infusion right here at home. And uh, boy, it's worked famously. We are one of four states in the US that hasn't had a rural hospital close in the last 10 years. That's something we're really proud of. And we do think we actually have the answer to a lot of the rural healthcare problems that, that folks are seeing. So the vision, all of these services, the virtual hospital, and for that matter, Castell and the enablement capabilities that you have, 
Are you looking beyond your three states? Are you looking outside and saying, who else can we serve? This could be a very significant business. We just completed an acquisition uh, rural air ambulance company called Classic Air. They're based in North Salt Lake. They're in um, all eight intermountain states. And they're also in Alaska and a couple other places as well. We have a super robust critical care transport program and have for years called Life Flight uh, that has really high-end, you know, neonatology teams and pediatric critical care teams. And uh, we can do ECMO, you know, really super sophisticated transport and air, air rescue. This is a much different, this is a rural service, this classic aviation. And these folks are in small towns and they really help keep rural hospitals vibrant. And we think this is a huge and absolutely novel integration effort that will knit together the Intermountain West uh, and the thing I love about what we're going to do is, as you know, Tom, rural air transport is a largely unregulated industry. And um, there are lots of people across the United States who've been uh, driven into bankruptcy by these absolutely obscene bills that people get from helicopter companies. And one of the reasons we wanted to buy Classic is that they haven't gone after a single person with a lawsuit for lack of payment in over five years. They've got a great safety record. They have never been asked to leave a town that they serve. Uh, they're really extremely ethical and competent and have a great safety record. To answer your question, if you look at our affiliates, we're actually now in, I think it's 10 states. We're covering about a quarter of the U.S. continental landmass, Tom. Wow. Watch out wow. for Intermountain. I know. Well, if you're starting to provide all of these services and all of these capabilities, at what point do your ambitions extend into bigger growth aspirations than that? And, and how does M&A feature on your corporate agenda? You will never, ever hear me say, we seek to be an X number of billion dollar company. That's CEO ego, and it's just baloney. Um, and you probably hear it all the time. We seek to be relevant, Tom. We're not going to be in markets if we don't have the relevance to actually be able to change the way healthcare is delivered there. And our M&A will never, ever do the unethical stuff that we see at times in healthcare M&A around just using the relevance to drive up the costs for the people we serve. And if you look at our track record in our main state at this point, Utah, over the last three years, we've actually seen a decrease in premiums by 6% on average over three years. Nationally, it's about a 5% increase year on year. So if you add that up, it's pretty darn close to a 25% decrease based on what the market should have done. So why do we do these really hard things like reorganize ourselves and stress the system? We do it because a third of Americans right now, Tom, are rationing their health care because they can't afford it. And that is a shame and it's a sin and we're not going to be part of it. That's pretty clear. A 6% decrease when the rest is all increasing. There's the result. Yes. How do you build a leadership team that's aligned around that clarity of purpose? So we, we say <laughs> we are mission obsessed. And I think that is the acid test. Um, uh, my team tends to be really gritty. <laughs> a lot of them come from very modest backgrounds. These are extremely smart, capable people. Uh, they all have big challenges in their life one way or the other. And they all know how to pick themselves up and keep moving forward and do the right thing. And um, they have not shied away from challenges one after the other. And 
they're nice to each other. I absolutely have no tolerance for boardroom executive team drama, turfiness, playing gotcha, competitiveness amongst the team. There's so much work to do that um, it's just, it's damaging and it's a waste of time and, and energy. So I think we've got a really clear operating model. Um, I think people know exactly what they're supposed to do. My expectation is they're going to get along really well. They're going to make great friends and lifelong relationships, and they're going to innovate and move fast and change the world. You've had a consistent track record of activism, of transformation. Of so I like you talking about the grit of the team, and uh, and I, I suspect you've learned some of that grit from recovering from cancer and from your Ironman performances. With all this activism, with all this transformation, we did. We only got to a small percentage of it. We didn't even talk about Civica and you're the, addressing the shortage of generics and all these other things that Intermountain's doing. What do you think is next? What's what are we going to see next from Intermountain? So, in addition to um, good growth, you'll see ongoing digital transformation. So, we're in the process of designing a digital ecosystem that will complement our value-based care. You will see additional investments in social determinants of health and keeping people well. You will see us drive a, a national effort around data interoperability and what the standards should look like, and actually the creation of a marketplace around interoperable products that will essentially provide a lingua franca for how healthcare technology works. And um, the introduction of the idea of a um, digital Hippocratic Oath that should help provide guardrails around how the digital healthcare actually works. And the company that will drive this is called Graphite. We've now stood it up and uh, we've got interest from very significant systems and also other companies from across the system, including big tech. We think this really needs to happen. It will again, Tom, be set up like Civica in a democratized public utility approach, we will never make money off of this. We will do good with it. And um, each and every American can be assured that we will never sell their data and we will never profit from their personal health information. So there's um, huge opportunities there. With Graphite, I want to understand, Graphite is a, is a platform, a data sharing platform for consumers. It will um, be a marketplace for healthcare software. It will be a repository for data in a very secure fashion. And the data will be organized so that it actually can be interoperable across systems and across applications. And it will be governed by the systems themselves. We probably will take a page from uh, Civica and have philanthropists involved and some, some excellent corporate citizens involved who want to get in early. And I think that you know, this kind of thing has been tried on a number of occasions, just as people complained about generic drugs forever. Uh, we actually are pretty firm believers that the market can solve things. And this is an example where we think we can bring the market together and create a healthy market because what we have right now is not. I look forward to seeing its success. One last question. If you had all the money and resources in the world, what thing would you go after? What's the one thing you'd change in healthcare? So look, you mentioned my cancer. And so I, I've, I had cancer first about uh, 12 years ago, I had bladder cancer. It was a tough go, uh, recovered from that. 
And now I've got a blood cancer called multiple myeloma, which is incurable. And I failed all the conventional chemotherapies and went to bone marrow transplant in uh, November, 2019, just before the pandemic hit. And as the pandemic was getting traction, I discovered that my bone marrow transplant didn't work and that the cancer was back and going fast. And so in April, 2020, I went for something called CAR-T therapy, which is based on sort of a version of CRISPR, some of this mRNA type work that has been so valuable during the pandemic. And here I am now, um, nearly 18 months later in, in complete remission and feeling good. But I have an incurable problem and I am intentional about making good use of every day. And the one thing that I'd never worried about, I didn't want to die. I didn't think I was done yet. Didn't want to leave my family. Would love to see grandkids one of these days and see my kids really function as adults. But one thing I didn't worry about was that I would become bankrupt. And I guess I also didn't worry about losing my job. That's not true for most Americans. Faced with the same problems, in addition to worrying about the existential things, they would worry about the practical things. And there is so much waste in American healthcare. Everybody can have CAR-T therapy if they need it or when they need it. So I'm bound and determined to try and change the system so that the resources exist for every regular American to get exactly what they need when they need it, but no more. That's what I would like to see for folks. Thank you very much, Mark. Great conversation. Really appreciate your time here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure, my friend. That was Dr. Mark Harrison, President and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare, talking with Oliver Wyman's Tom Robinson. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. For more insights on the business of transforming healthcare, visit our online publication at health.oliverwyman.com. On behalf of everyone who made this show possible, thank you for listening.